Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. We are going to skip over all of the Game of Thrones thumbsuckery and get right to it. Um, but if you're interested in Game of Thrones thumbsuckery, uh, there was a special episode of the Glop Podcast where we went into great detail on all of it. And uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Untuck It and by Sleep Number. More about that later. Uh, we have in the studio Joe Sternberg of the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, currently residing in London, though in Washington, uh, for his new for his book tour, on to talk about his new book, uh, "Theft of a Decade: How the Millennials, How the Baby Boomers Screwed Over the Millennials," or words to that. Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay, so um, welcome, and uh, why don't you make your case? Okay, well, I, thanks for having me in. Uh, you know, it's really exciting when you've been working on a book for eight months in the library, uh, talking to yourself about it, to finally be able to talk about the rest of the world, uh, you know, talk to the rest of the world about this issue. And, you know, I started out actually asking myself a question, which is who's right? You know, we have this weird dynamic going on right now uh, politically where I think that baby boomers and millennials are really talking past each other so that you have millennials saying we have – a lot of economic problems. Uh, times have not been good for us, particularly over the past decade. Um, and then you, you – know, and we have all of these problems with student debt, with a job market that isn't quite working for us. We're struggling to get onto the housing ladder. And then you encounter a lot of boomers who talk right past that and say, you kids have never had it so good. You have Google to do your homework for you. Uh, you have Tinder to find your mates. You have LinkedIn to manage your career. What are you complaining about? Uh, and I, so I really sat down to try to unpack all of that and figure out uh, who is on the right side of that argument. And unfortunately for any of the baby boomers who are listening to this podcast, uh, I think it really does come down on the side of the millennials. I think that if you look at a lot of what's been happening in the economy, uh, especially over the past 10 years, you discover that things have changed in ways that have had a pretty profound negative effect on millennials that you would have to go back to the generation that was young in the Great Depression to see anything similar. Um, okay, so fair warning. I am a, I, I've modified my views about this a little bit, but I am a, 
still a deep skeptic about generational generalizing or stereotyping. Listeners of this podcast have heard me say many, many times about how I hate the phrase the greatest generation because if you storm Normandy, good for you. But if you were home in a drunk tank, um, why you should get any reflected glory because you just happen to be born in the same cohort is kind of silly. Um, but I'll, we can get more back into that in, in a second. What you know, what specifically is have the the baby born? And don't get me wrong. All of that said, I'm perfectly comfortable with my cognitive dissonance. Um, I have no problem beating the crap out of baby boomers because I'm a Gen Xer and and we're the only good generation. And um, uh, but what specifically did the baby boomers do to screw over the millennials? Okay, well, I, first I want to go back and talk about this generational point because it actually is really important, and this is a point I try to be really clear about in the book because the book is about the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that almost is the only way that it makes sense. The, the, the only reason it makes sense to talk about um, generations when you're having these discussions about boomers and millennials is the economy and for a very particular reason, which is that we found ourselves in a situation where you just had this unusually large cohort uh, entering the American labor force. I mean, millennials are the largest generation in the population since the boomers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you had uh, this cohort entering the labor market during uh, and immediately after the Great Recession. Right. So that uh, economic fact, I think, does actually mean that millennials share a lot of things in common with each other where I would actually be you know, entirely in your camp if you're talking about cultural issues, uh, you know, if you're trying to argue that boomers or millennials all have uh, you know, various uniform outlooks on life or you know, attitudes toward you know, politics or any of that sort of thing. The one thing I focus on is this experience of a cohort of young people who entered the labor market en masse uh, during a period when we had uh, the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression and immediately afterward. Mm -hmm. And the experience for uh, those people was that it took them much longer than it historically has for previous cohorts to get their footing in the labor market. Uh, you know, we millennials, I'm one myself. I was born in 82, so I'm at the oldest ends of that range. Uh, you know, we have found ourselves really struggling to um, you know, climb onto any sort of earnings ladder so that we can start recouping what we lost earlier in our career. Uh, you know, that has a bunch of knock-on effects for things like the student debt issue. I mean, you ask yourself, how much of that student debt did we accumulate because you had people in this cohort that were going into higher education, again, as a form of warehouse because the labor market wasn't working. Uh, it has a lot of implications for uh, the housing market as we get into the period when we should be buying homes and settling down and starting families but aren't because of affordability issues. And you know, the argument that I want to make in the book is that this, a lot of this is the result of policy choice uh, mm -hmm. because there is an argument particularly among some uh, boomer economists and I think this is especially active on the left end of the spectrum right now to just suggest that it's all a force of nature in some way, that uh, the demographic change or – um, you know, the phases of the moon or uh, changes in technological development somehow mean that the kind of economy that we had over the past decade was inevitable. And that's not true. It was a bunch of policy choices that uh, politicians, by and large baby boomers themselves, made to you know, that contributed to the conditions that caused the financial crisis and then made it so much more difficult for the American economy to claw its way out of it. Okay. Um I believe all that and I believe in the I, – I suspect that I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the policy critiques that you're making. But 
I, I guess part of my reluctance about the the framing is just simply that you could make all of the same arguments that you're making and probably be almost as accurate if you were talking about white dudes from elite schools or right-handed people. Or I mean, my, my point is, is that the fact that they were born from in a specific generational cohort, how much sinew is there between their generational cohort and the, I mean, is there anything that flows from being born from 1946 to 1962 or whatever, however you define the baby boomers, that, that you can put the blame on the, their identity as baby boomers rather than on, on a certain technocratic liberalism that emerges after World War II or, you know, when I play the generational blame game, I actually put a lot of blame on the the, the greatest generation because, you know, and, and Howe and Strauss, who I've always had a love-hate relationship with that book, they point out that basically over the course of their entire lifetime, government kept bending the rules to benefit the the GI generation essentially, right? Um, the first public schools, the first um, sort of all the progressive reforms when they were kids – um, then they go into the army, then they come out of the army and they get the GI Bill and then there are all these changes to entitlements for their benefit. And one of the things that the greatest generation did is screw us by giving us baby boomers. But anyway, my point is, is like, what is the – why is that the frame that you think is has the best explanatory value? OK. So you know, first off, I mean the, the, the key issue is actually not when you were born um, you know, as being the factor that shapes all of this because I think that there's a lot of – you know, I wouldn't be interested in talking about millennials in the same way if we weren't uh, talking about the um, effects of this recession that hit at that particular sure. point in our life cycle. So now you go back to the boomers. I think it's fair to have this conversation about them too because one of the points that I really tried to bring out in the book is that you can't really start uh, this discussion in the Great Recession itself between 2007 and 2009. It started earlier than that, a lot of the policy issues that I'm talking about in the book. And it started because the boomers themselves lived through an earlier round of um, transformation in the American economy. They lived through the late 60s, early 70s process where America started to face new pressures from global trade as Japan and Germany came online. Um, as you saw some some really interesting and, and at the time rather puzzling breakdowns in investment in the economy that had all sorts of ill effects for the boomers. So again, the, the thing that I think what's interesting about the boomers is not that there is something inherently wrong uh, because you know, we started fluorinating the water or whatever it was between 46 and 64. It's because uh, they were really shaped by that uh, experience of the economic transformation. And I think that they extracted a lot of the wrong lessons from that mm -hmm. that have then gone on to shape uh, that generation's approach to public policy as they started getting elected into positions where they could actually influence things. So again, it's not that I'm so focused on generations from the perspective of uh, birth and this notion of big cycles. I mean, that's the big um, you know, complaint I have about the Strauss and Howe book mm -hmm. that started all of this talk about right. generations. Um, I think that that overstates it, but I think that you can draw some conclusions, particularly if you have big cohorts that are living through uh, particular periods of economic disruption, and then you ask what are the lessons that they learned from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, you talk about a big part of the problem being this emergence of a technocratic liberalism, and a point that I tried to make in the book is that the baby boomers – 
in some ways accelerated that process once they got in charge because they thought that that was the solution to the problems right. that they lived through. Right. Uh, and instead, uh, it created an economy that for various reasons seems to have grown less stable over time that seems to be more prone uh, to the kind of calamity that we had in the financial crisis. Uh, and they also created a policy environment uh, because they had learned the wrong lessons from their own experience uh, I think has really disrupted a lot of the normal generational balances that an economy should be trying to strike. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's that – there are two quotes, which I'm going to completely butcher, from JFK. One was in a press conference and one was, I think, at a speech at Yale where he basically says, the economy has gotten so complicated now that we basically have to leave it in the hands of experts and take it out of the the hands of the voters and just leave it to the sort of technocrats – he doesn't use the word technocrat. I think it's experts, but um, it is absolutely true. It seems to me that 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 wave that comes out of the World War II experience, which had, I mean, Kennedy, I guess, technically wasn't a baby boomer, right? But he was speaking to the baby boomers in a way. Mm -hmm. He was the voice of that generation. You know, let the word go forth, um, and all the vigor, which came from all the pills. But anyway, um, that this notion that that the torch was passed from these heroic people and now we have to be heroic and how we organize politics in a new way and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm totally with you on, on that idea. But so what are the, what are the specific ways that you think the, the baby boomer experience informed public policy that screwed over the millennials? Okay. Well, I think the starting point for this is actually in the 60s, in the Kennedy era, and even earlier in the 50s with the economy that most of the boomers grew up with. Right. Uh, because, of course, the 50s and 60s was an unusual era for the American economy in the historical perspective. It was a time when we had enormous waves of investment and productivity growth. Um, you know, it didn't face a lot of global competition because our biggest competitors had been taken offline right. uh, after the war. And so the boomers grew up in an environment where uh, – You also they, had an enormous amount of pent-up demand from both the Great Depression and then World War II where all these guys came home and they wanted washing machines. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so you, the, the boomers grew up in this area era when they saw their parents enjoying – these immense trappings of economic security. Mm -hmm. You know, their their fathers, it was by and large the fathers, could generally afford to support a family on one income and they would be doing it uh, with a job that they would have for decades that would be pretty secure, that would have these terrific uh, fringe benefits uh, like the health insurance, um, all of that. So I – you know, the way I think about this problem is that the mistake the boomers made is they – emerged into an economy in the 70s where that was no longer the case is that they thought about the security that they had enjoyed in the 50s and 60s as an economic input mm -hmm. instead of an economic output. Right. And if you think about it that way, because I actually think that a lot of those things, and this is also true of some of the things that people on the left like about that era of the 50s and 60s, such as strong labor unions. Right. I think that uh, labor union strength, uh, particularly in the private sector, is a an output of a very productive economy that is increasing labor's productivity so that it has more bargaining power in the marketplace. 
Um, the problem is the boomers thought that uh, if they treated all of these things as inputs, uh, they could, through regulatory fiat, recreate that kind of security. And I, you know, this is basically the mindset that shows up in so many ways. If you look at so many different tracks of uh, boomer uh, policymaking, and among both the Democrats and the Republicans uh, during the era that they've been presidents. Um, you know, I think that in a way it was uh, arguably true of the George W. Bush administration's interest in housing policy and home ownership because mm -hmm. they thought that home ownership had certainly been a transformative thing for the American middle class in the 50s and 60s as more people started doing it. Mm -hmm. um, they thought that, you know, home ownership would be an input into economic stability instead of thinking of it in terms of being an output of an economy. Uh, where workers were productive enough that they could command the kind of wages in the market that would make housing affordable. Um, you know, once we got into the post-crisis era and you had uh, Barack Obama in the White House, um, you know, the whole point of things like uh, Obamacare, which was actually in some interesting ways trying to double down on this notion that, you know, health insurance should be linked in some way to employment or things like the overtime rules that he would talk about or, uh, you know, just a whole host of regulations, uh, you know, favor unionization uh, in that era. It was because, uh, you know, progressive economists will try to argue to you that if you increase the minimum wage high enough or if you give workers more bargaining power, that will be the thing that will induce investment and productivity growth. Um, and instead, it actually uh, created a lot of distortion in the labor market. And young people Millennials were particularly vulnerable to that because young people are always vulnerable to that. Mm. So, I mean, that's the, that's the main mistake I think the boomers made. It was this confusion about thinking of economic security as an input into the system instead of something that they should have been getting out of it by focusing more on what did they need to do to turn or reverse this long-term decline America had seen in uh, business investment and productivity growth uh, during the entire – their entire adult lives. Okay. Kind of remind, there was this great line from Brink Lindsay years ago about how today he was writing like I don't know 2008 or something like that that today's conservatives want to live in the 1950s and today's liberals want to work there right and there was this sort of bipartisan view that the 50s were normal and we screwed up by getting away from them rather than them being abnormal and I don't mean to belabor the the greatest generation bashing but I I, I do relish it so um, couldn't you make the I mean couldn't you rephrase this just sort of slightly and say so, like, my, my, my take on the greatest generation thing was that you had this generation that was – that blamed the crash, which is sort of the same thesis that you have, right, from 2008. They blamed the stock market crash and the intellectuals who had been desperate to mimic the plan, you know, the economic planning of various regimes around the world. They exploited that and they convinced this generation that came up in the 1930s that the New Deal was the right way to organize things. And so you had the most regimented generation in American history that then goes off to World War II and is really regimented because you're fighting a war. And then they come home and they somehow internalize this idea that the prosperity they're coming home to was the product of the planners, when in reality, the planners are the ones who prolonged the Great Depression, kept us in subsistence, really since, you know, and it's what they did during World War I too. And then, you know, Planners can only hold back economic growth so much when all of your major competitors have are now rubble and um, 
you've got this huge industrial base that you build up for World War II that can be converted to peacetime ends, and you've got this huge pent-up demand of a generation that grew up really poor and then was in the army for a very long time or working on the home front. And so isn't the couldn't you make the case that the real problem is, is that the boomers got the causation of all of the prosperity that they were growing up wrong, right? They They – they thought that the greatest generation crowd, the New Dealer crowd, even the Great Society crowd were the ones who had managed to make the economy good when in reality the economy was good despite them and they've never lost this internalized notion that economic planning is the way to fix things. Well, I think that there's a lot in that that I would agree with. I might just put a slightly different spin on it because I think that there was a really uh, interesting transformation that went on uh, as the boomers started grappling with these issues because remember – they grew up with a very stable economic environment in the 50s and 60s, right. but not, that was not the economy that they worked in. Mm-hmm. You know, boomers uh, started emerging into the labor market in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, a large tranche of them really hit starting in the mid to late 70s. And mm-hmm. what was going on then? I mean, that was a period when you had had a total collapse in investment. The economy was being buffeted by uh, new trade forces because these competitors had come back online. Inflation. Uh, you had the stagflation, the gas lines. Um, you know, there was a clear recognition that actually that old technocratic model hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could actually see some signs that they were trying to grasp in the right direction. I mean, remember that the boomers were already a substantial force in the electorate by the time Reagan was doing the reforms of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the whole motivating force behind that was this recognition that the American economy had an investment problem. I think that the part of the issue is that over time, they just kind of forgot or they somehow managed to learn the wrong experiences from what had happened uh, as the old planning model had collapsed around them in the 70s. And what emerged was this kind of third way approach that was going to try to harness the productive power of the market uh, for the ends of the what the boomers thought was the protective power of the state. I mean, remember, it's the boomers who were the pioneers of the sort of uh, third way or the new yeah. Democrats or – The Atari Democrats, Lester Thoreau, all that or, stuff. Or the Bush-era uh, compassionate conservatism, which was, again, an attempt to try to find ways that you could meld the market and the government um, mm-hmm. – to achieve certain ends that people thought were desirable. I mean, the big surprise for me, um, particularly as a millennial conservative researching and writing this book, was to discover that, you know, I was born in 82, so I first started becoming politically aware of what was going on around me in the late 80s, early 2000s. And for all of Late the, 90s. Late 90s. Yeah. Uh, for all of the uh, bruising political battles that I remember going on between the Clintons and the Bushes and the, you know, uh, the Gingrich floating around <laughs> and all of that, uh, if you looked at the actual policies that got implemented um, by boomer politicians, either Republicans or Democrats, they were often traveling in a very narrow lane. Mm-hmm. And again, this was something that I did not exactly expect to find when I started researching the book, but I think there is a good case to make that that was true. And that was the narrow lane that they had settled into because they realized that the extreme technocracy that they had grown up with wasn't viable anymore. They had seen the collapse of that uh, and they were casting about for other alternatives and they thought that they had find the, found the right way to get that degree of techno, you know, to get some degree of technocratic management to work in tandem with the market. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been saying for years that 
that the problem with compassionate conservatism wasn't that it was this crazy right wing thing. It wasn't. It wasn't a um, alternative to Clintonism. It was a version of Clintonism, right? It was just a little more socially conservative, but. Bush was was adamant. I mean, I remember getting a lot of grief about writing about this stuff at National Review back then that, um, you know, when Bush was asked about Buckley-eyed conservatism in this interview with Fred Barnes, he says, you know, the whole standing authority history yelling stop. He said, you know, no, I don't agree with any of that stuff. When people are hurting, government's got to move. He said that um, he wasn't – he didn't like the phrase big government conservatism, but he liked strong government conservatism. And – um, which, by my lights, is a very subtle distinction. <laughs> um, and uh, so, no, I, I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, Clinton, what was it he said that, you know, he says, we're all, we're all Nixonites now or something like that? When, because he was like, we're all owned by the bond market or something. And, but I guess the, the, it seems to me, because I like intellectual history, I tend to look at where these ideas, how the ideas manifest themselves less through the generational prism and more through other factors, I guess. Um, but I don't, I'm not necessarily, I, I've come around to the idea that there are some stereotypes about generations that you can ascribe to. I mean, people of Jack's generation are just lazy, soporific, ungrateful bastards. Um, Jack, not necessarily included. <laughs> just trying to keep him from piping up on the microphone. Um, and I, you know, and I, I become really enamored with uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling American Mind, which makes some really interesting points about what's happening with today's millennials. And I worry about that because of my kid. And speaking of my kid, um, because I have one, that qualifies me for Father's Day. And Father's Day is coming up. And that brings to mind our first sponsor of the week, of, of the program, um, Untuck It. Long-time listeners of this know that I was once an Untucket skeptic, and now I am actually a um, um, a pretty big fan. I wear them all the time. I've bought without my one-time discount uh, more of their stuff because it's like super comfortable, and you can actually look like you're um, you're dressing up while not feeling like it. So let me ask you: When was the last time your dad went shopping? Update his closet with some of our modern, perfectly fitted shirts. Your mom will thank you later. You can find something for every style, from the VP dad that looks that needs to look cool and put together in meetings all day in their luxe, wrinkle-free shirts, or the casual dad running errands on the weekend in a cool plaid button-down. With more than 50 fit combinations, untucked shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and bigger guys of all ages. Of this, I can attest. Shirts with plenty of choices on colored material and design. Their signature sale on the bottom reminds you that this shirt is best worn unfurled. No furling here. So take your dad to try it on in person at one of Untucket's 50 stores or go to untucket.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code DINGO at checkout. That's untucket.com. Promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. Um, as an aside, in London, are there, because you live in London. Yes. Are there any, um, and we'll get back to your book, I promise, but are there any restaurants in London that still require a jacket and tie? 
Um, I feel like there are a few, particularly some of the university clubs where one sure. of them, you know, occasionally gets invited for various events. But uh, it has become more and more a tie-free society. Yeah. This, this is a great peeve of mine and I want to – I actually think about doing a column or a show about this is that the, the lack of dress codes everywhere now. Um, I think it's – I don't think there's a restaurant in California that you have to wear a tie to anymore. I live in fear, though, that um, I will stumble across a restaurant where there is a dress code and I won't know it. Yeah. Because uh, the uncertainty, and this is also an interesting regulatory point in general, sometimes the uncertainty can be just as damaging as the fact of it. And sure. not knowing if there is a dress code can create as much stress as you spend time on the website trying to figure out if there is one that right. you just haven't found. But I think culturally, I think it's a, it's a problem. And I think it's I'll be, be a little sexist here. I think it's particularly unfair to women um, because um, – not to traffic in grotesque stereotypes, but I think women look for more opportunities to dress up than men do. And men need opportunities to show they're putting in a little more effort for the women in their lives. And um, it seems to me it would be a great idea for some restaurants out there to maybe not have dress codes every night but like Saturday nights – so like when you're taking your wife out for an anniversary, you're taking your wife out for something important, you actually put in the effort. Because I go to places in L.A. sometimes and you'll see people dressed like they just left a pickup basketball game in a crazy high-end restaurant. And I just think it's gross. But Tie Tuesday. We can get this started there on Twitter right now. That's right. Let's start the hashtag. Um, so uh, one last thing about London. Um, do you see analogous social generational dynamics in the UK economy? I mean, is it, does, is, does your thesis, you think, apply somewhat or is it just a different scenario? Yeah, this was a really interesting part of the uh, book research for me because there is a chapter in there that looks at some of these international comparisons. I look at uh, what went wrong uh, in the European Union labor market for young people, uh, especially after the crisis. I look at the housing market in the UK. The labor market for young people in the, UK, in the EU has been worse than Yes. America's by far for a long time though, right? Uh, uh, yes. And in ways that I think cast an interest, you know, hold up an interesting mirror to what's happening in the U.S. right now and make you worry about whether we have uh, put ourselves on course to go down the same road. Um, because – so first off, I mean as an overarching point about some of these international issues, um, I'll say that one of the things that I found most uh, surprising and also most worrying – as I was working on the book, is that if you look at developed countries around the world, uh, America, Canada, Japan, Western Europe, you have a wide range of uh, cultural backgrounds. You have a wide range of uh, tax policies. You have a wide range of uh, configurations for a social welfare state. Um, you have a wide range of policies for managing their budgets. I mean, America hasn't run a surplus in living memory. The Germany is actually in surplus right now. The one thing that no one is able to – did have a surplus break, briefly at the end of the 1990s, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah, br budget surplus. Very yeah, briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing that no developed economy seems to be able to get right um, with the possible exception of Denmark, I, I am told – is generational balance and particularly this handoff from uh, whatever generation was born after the Second World War to um, you know people who are analogous to the millennial generation mm -hmm. now. And they're all failing in ways that I think are really instructive for us in the U.S. So for example, the, the astonishingly high, scandalously high youth unemployment rates that have been 
chronic in Europe for a long time happen because they allow to develop a situation where young workers become the economic shock absorbers. Every time there's a downturn, it's the youth who get laid off first. Why is it? It's because they pursue actually a lot of these policies that the boomers pursued under this uh, economic security as an input Mm -hmm. model. Um, It happens because if you're in a continental European economy, the policy favoritism for unions and union membership is much stronger. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is always bad for younger workers because it creates this insider versus outsider dynamic and young workers are always the ultimate outsiders. Um, If you look at issues like the minimum wage countries where uh, the minimum wage is set much higher relative to medium wages than is the case here in America – Um, You tend to have high youth unemployment because young workers are always less productive than older workers who have more skills and experience under their belt. Hell yeah. Um, And so, uh, you know, just all of these policies that end up in the labor market that price people out of it. I think the UK is a good example. Uh, One of the issues I talk about in the property – in the uh, book concerns the property market and the problem for millennials is that we get – priced out in uh, economically prosperous urban areas where supply is constrained. Mm. And in the UK, they have had these supply constraints for longer and they have grown more and more severe. Uh, And you now see an example of uh, the problems that that creates the longer that you allow some of these problems to fester in terms of the delayed family formation, in terms of the – you know, financial unease that young people feel. And increasingly, in terms of these concerns about what happens if you have a large cohort that, you know, that retires without owning their homes, um, at least in the UK system, people who are renters require more financial assistance from the government for housing once they're retired you know, because they don't actually own their home. And are they ready for the fiscal burdens that that is going to present. I mean, that's an interesting issue if America is going to make a transition to a model where you have a lot of people in the middle class who will be graduating without that kind of housing wealth to fall back on. Um, there's one policy area where I, I haven't heard you mention, um, and I'm kind of curious about it on two f- fronts. As you may know, there's always been an intramural friction between National Review and the Wall Street Journal on the issue of immigration. Um, and I believe that the, the Wall Street Journal has never recanted this notorious editorial where they said the Constitution should be amended to say there shall be open borders, which I'm sure is an enormous headache for some of my friends at the Wall Street Journal. But it seems to me if young people, I think definitionally, right, young people tend to be less skilled. And um, it's actually on a sliding scale when when babies come into this world, they're really unskilled. Like they don't even know how to go to the bathroom yet, right? And then um, this is something that always infuriates people when I say it, but there's a very high correlation between ignorance and youth, right? Because when you start out, you're born really, really ignorant and then you only get over – your ignorance only declines as you get older. But anyway – which is why I hate youth politics and all that youth identity politics stuff. But young people are unskilled. It's one of the reasons why I think uh, really aggressive minimum wage laws are immoral because they're depriving young people from the opportunity to get skills, right? I mean, it, I talked about this on the Chicago podcast the other day. I mean, I'm not a big fan of medieval economics, but one of the things they got right was 
that you paid the blacksmith or the mason or whoever it was to give your kid a job because what they were doing was giving your kid IP that allowed them to have a, a prosperous life. And um, But immigrants are also, especially unskilled immigrants, are direct competitors for young people. And um, how much do you think immigration plays a role in in this dynamic? Okay, well, I will uh, just clarify that I am going to speak here on my own behalf. Absolutely. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. The journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Although I wouldn't mind a big Anchorman-style sort of fight scene between all of them. But that's a different issue. So, Well, I, you know, immigration is one of those issues where I think both the economics and the politics of it are going to be really complicated for the millennial generation. So, I mean, first of all, actually the politics of this is a little easier to understand because – a fact that I think people don't talk enough about with the millennial generation is that we look very different from the baby boomer generation in America. Um, I think part of that has to do with the fact that uh, boomer mothers did not themselves replicate the fertility boom that had created the baby boom itself right. uh, in their own mothers. Um, and so, in fact, one of the reasons that uh, millennials are now the uh, – either have recently become or will soon become the largest generation with, or cohort within the American population is immigration over the past 20 or 30 years augmenting our right. numbers. And so that means that you have this cohort, um, you know, both in the population and in the electorate that looks uh, very different and the, uh, is just more accustomed to – um, you know, at least some of the cultural implications of that kind of uh, diversity. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, I think that you would expect politically that millennials uh, – and, and in fact, I think there's some polling data out there that suggests that millennials are kind of over the immigration issue. It just seems intuitive to them that you should have a more liberal immigration policy. Mm -hmm. Now – you're right that, you know, as you start looking at some of the economic or the labor market implications of that, it does become very complicated, especially at the lower skilled end of the spectrum. Oh, there's an H-1B aspect among elite kids too. Right. It's a little different. Yeah. Well, but one of the confounding factors in all of this is also just the trend toward uh, more education and skill acquisition among millennials. I mean, we're a generation that has gone to college in larger numbers than any cohort in America up to now. In fact, that creates a lot of the political and economic stress that we feel. You have this large cohort of people who uh, invested so much money in getting education and then are disappointed that the jobs aren't there at that level in the labor market. But you know, from the perspective of immigration, that raises a question about how many millennials will actually think that they are in competition for low-skilled migrants for work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other little Philip, and I'm I'm not quite going to go out on a limb to say that this is going to be a big dynamic that millennials are going to have to face, but I've seen a couple suggestions hinting at this that imply that it might be a problem. Yeah, the one economic benefit that I think that immigration does have for America is that it is fueling population mm -hmm. increase. Uh, and we are discovering in places like Germany that don't have that, that actually you need more people mm -hmm. in order to have a growing economy. Well, you know, during most of the time that the boomers had been jostling around, um, it, there wasn't a question where America was going to get – what how it, we could have however many immigrants that we wanted. In fact, uh, the political problem is that we often had more than we thought that we did want. Mm -hmm. 
But there's an interesting question about whether that's going to change in the coming decades as you have more economic development uh, south of the border and a lot of places that have been big sources of low-skilled migration into the U.S. Uh, and as you start having more economic opportunities developing in those parts, it actually raises a question about whether the immigration debate for millennials 20 or 30 years from now isn't going to be how do we keep out these low-skilled workers that we think are competing with us for jobs. It's going to instead become how do we entice the number of immigrants that our economy needs uh, away from the, their home economies that are starting to give them more opportunities there. Yeah, that would be a good problem to have in my, by my lights compared to the problem we have now. Um, I've, I'm one of these people who thinks most of the problems that America has and the world have are solved by everyone getting a lot richer. Um, so I want I want to actually get to the um, you know the gitchy goo um, productive solutions phase of this, but um, <coughs> um, as a grand Hayekian skeptic of all notions that policymakers, whether Republican or Democrat, can fine tune policy goals well. Um, I, I come from the school that says most people just don't know what the hell they're doing. And even if they do, the world doesn't respond to them like a trained dog um, or even like one of my dogs. But how much of these things – I mean take, for example, stuff you brought up. Um, millennials, uh, baby boomers not having as many kids as their parents did. Uh, millennials having even fewer. Um, you know, that – I I all – due respect to Ramesh Panuru and some of my friends who want more generous child tax credits and all the rest, the mere fact that you need to resort to child tax credits is evidence of chasing a problem that already exists, right? I'm one of these guys, sort of like Carl Hess, who thinks that, or Whitaker Chambers, that technology is a bigger driver of cultural and political change than a lot of ideas or policies are. The problem is it's very hard to argue with technology. Um, you know, the car did more, the automobile did more to unsettle traditional communities than any wacky ideas out of some French salon. Um, but you can argue with Sartre, you can't argue with a Buick, right? And the, Pat Moynihan used to talk about how one of the biggest single drivers of cultural change was the birth control pill. World War II, which was a policy program, but one of the completely unintended consequences is that it pulled women out of the home and into the workforce and they didn't want to go back. So how much... Is it possible that to some extent you're overemphasizing the importance of the baby boomer policy approach rather than these forces that the baby boomers and and the rest of us are manifestations of that is not necessarily the direct result of policy? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think the best way that, that I think about this is that I am raising the question of exactly where that line is. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that there's still actually a lot of confusion about these issues. So, I mean, uh, to, to cite a specific you know, example that is very controversial right now, this issue of should we be adopting natalist policies mm -hmm. like child tax credits? So, yes, it is absolutely true that uh, millennials are delaying family formation uh, or delaying uh, child having children or having fewer children. But I think that it's actually an open question how much of that – is actually the result of cultural changes and how much of it is uh, directly or indirectly a result of various policy choices that we've made. I mean, the reality is that a lot of the policy environment, or especially over the past 10 years, have badly distorted the housing market. Mm -hmm. 
may be interacting with some of these dynamics. I mean, you'll talk to a lot of millennials who uh, might, in fact, opinion polls uh, periodically appear showing this. Millennials will say, well, you know, I really uh, am keen to settle down. I want to start a family. We can't do it because we can't afford housing. Right. Right. So, I, you know, it's not a matter that I'm trying to argue that all of the issue here is policy choices. And I'm also not trying to argue for rolling back the clock because I think that the American economy is going to continue to evolve and change. That's part of its genius that right. uh, historically we were much more willing than a lot of other countries in the West to tolerate and even embrace that kind of change and evolution in the economy and allowing the market to direct us toward our future. But I do think that particularly after this uh, very narrow path of uh, quasi-technocratic governance that the boomers followed, we need to ask ourselves again how much of uh, what we are seeing right now is the result of policy choices that are somehow shaping the decisions people are making in ways that we never expected versus how much of it is this normal evolution. I, I would like to live in an America where um, you know, these things are allowed as much as possible to follow a natural course without someone here in Washington deciding that they're going to lean on the scale one way or the other right. uh, to cut off one set of options or to uh, try to push us down another road. Uh, so that, that's really the way I came to think about that kind of question that you're getting at. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally fair um, and it's a good way to think about things. And it's also not just Washington, right? It's, you know, rent control does more to jack up, which is purely a local thing. I mean, I'm sure there's some subsidy through HUD or something that helps with rent, con- that exacerbates rent control. But the reality is that's a total, it's, it's economic nimbyism in effect. And, you know, my friend Raihan Salam, who's now at, at uh, the Manhattan Institute, all you have to do is mention urban zoning and he'll go on for 20 minutes about how great Houston is because... Houston actually has the kind of zoning policies that allow people to build houses, build apartment buildings and whatnot. And it's a much better place for young people to live compared to a lot of other cities for precisely the reasons you're getting at. And I'm deeply sympathetic to that point in the sense that I think it is absolutely true that the baby boomers were a profoundly selfish and entitled generation. We talk about millennial entitlement. I'm happy to talk about millennial entitlement. It's worth pointing out that Gen X, you know, if you go back and you watch all the classic Gen X movies or you read, you know, Douglas Copeland and stuff, we weren't, we didn't consider ourselves entitled. We, we were just dark and cynical and bitchy, which is a slightly different thing. Um, and, um, and deeply ironic, you know, we were the ones who championed, yeah, whatever. But if you go back and you, I always like to point out the opening lines from the Port Huron statement where, you know, the, the, they, they admit it. They say, opening words are, and I'm completely butchering it, but, you know, we, this generation that has grown up largely in comfort, are looking – and basically they're just like – they were deeply envious that their parents defeated Nazism and ended the Holocaust and all that kind of stuff. And they were looking for meaning. And I think that's one of the things that lent legitimate moral passion to the civil rights movement. But it also lent a lot of moral passion to a lot of tech technocratic jackassery with the great society. And so – I'm one of these guys who believes in simple rules for a complex society, and the problem is, is that we raise these generations that that think that if you can just get the data right, if you can just get the the knobs turned to the exact right position, you can, as Bill Clinton used to say, grow the economy. And I think that 
that mindset is a huge problem. Although it's, I think it's still an unresolved question how beholden to that kind of mindset millennials are going to end up being. And I can hear uh, listeners out there in podcast land already like throwing things at their phones because I've said that because, of course, we have all of these poll data about millennials embracing socialism. Mm. Um, the most flamboyant, although certainly not the only millennial in Congress, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But I actually think that if you dig a little deeper, and uh, Ed Glazer has a terrific piece about this in uh, the Spring City Journal, mm -hmm. uh, How to Talk to Millennials About Capitalism, uh, where he makes a point that jumped out at me when I was researching the book that uh, despite what we say when asked that headline question about support for socialism or capitalism, a lot of attitudes further down in that polling are much more complicated. If you look at attitudes toward entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. um, attitudes towards specific things that government does uh, that we intuit aren't working for us, um, it's a, a much more nuanced picture. I think that the flamboyance of a politician like AOC is tending to obscure the fact that what's re I think what's really happening is that millennials are casting around for politicians who will talk about these problems and are looking for any way out of that very narrow boomer policy lane. And right now, the yeah. people who are doing the most effective job at offering that uh, somewhat ironically are old, like very old, yeah. too old to be a boomer socialist like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's also a lot of scope for people on the right uh, to engage in these uh, discussions and, you know, there are some aspects of the millennial generation that mean that we might actually be beholden to that. I was talking to a bunch of millennials, um, you know, a bit earlier about all of this. And, you know, they were telling this story so many of us have about just the sense that we are exclusively responsible for our financial futures. We mm -hmm. don't expect that Social Security and Medicare will be there to take care of us. Uh, we have never really had a labor market where you could count on one employer to give you a good salary and good fringe benefits. So, I mean, despite these stereotypes about lazy millennials, most of the millennials I talk to, without going all uh, Pauline Kale here, mm -hmm. are uh, actually working two or three different side hustles to try yeah. to make sure that they are uh, keeping their heads above water in this job market. Yeah. Um, so there is a real sense of hustle. There is a real sense of uh, individual work ethic there. Those are things that conservatives, I think, or I like to hope, can talk to. Uh, but first, we need to be prepared to engage in that discussion. And I think that uh, the thing that I sometimes hear, particularly from older people, boomers on the right, that, well, you know, it was always difficult for everyone when they're young and you guys will grow out of it eventually – I don't think that's a really satisfying answer for millennials given the depth of the recession that we have come through, the point in our life cycle when it hit us uh, and the long-term consequences we'll deal with. And if you can't at least uh, recognize that there is a problem there, then you can't um, you know, compete with us in terms of how to solve it. Yeah. No, I, I think that's fair. I mean the point I try to make to college kids a lot is that they live – the most bespoke, particularly elite college kids, right? They live the most bespoke lifestyles of any Americans, any humans in human history, right? They they download their media, watch it whenever they want, however they want. They can order from a rich panoply of restaurants that just miraculously deliver. I mean, stuff that I never had, you know, options for. And I grew up in New York City where I had a lot of options. And yet part of the problem is, is that the bulk of them still want, you know, they, they're an iPhone generation that still votes for a post office party. 
And I think there is a real opportunity there for Republicans to figure out or for conservatives to figure out how to talk to them where they are. But one of the problems that the Republican Party has these days is that it is entirely dependent upon really old, cranky, baby boomer right-wingers. And that they and they bring a set of policy expectations that is very hard to combat. Well, uh, you know, we've made it this far uh, in the podcast without talking about Donald Trump. And unfortunately, I'm not sure we can go any further because I realize that actually thinking about Donald Trump in generational terms, uh, so much of it started making sense for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an interesting fact is that he and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, I think, were all born within a few months of each other. I forget exactly what the year was. And the way I've been putting it is that some conservatives are pro-Trump conservatives and some people are um, never Trump conservatives. I think a lot of millennials uh, probably find themselves being Trump who mm -hmm. conservatives. Uh, because the agenda that he talks about reflects so perfectly the preoccupations of the boomers in their younger years, mm -hmm. uh, including on the trade stuff. I mean, we're talking a lot right now about uh, Trump's approach to trade with China. But remember that he also has Japan and West Germany in his – or well, now Germany, Germany mm -hmm. in his crosshairs. That is absolutely mystifying to millennials. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to boomers where you can go back and I, I found a clipping in the New York Times of Donald Trump from the 80s claiming that if he had been in charge of trade negotiations with Japan instead of Reagan, it would have all turned out so much better than right. it did. Right. Uh, so, you know, the whole trade thing I think represents uh, uh, boomer preoccupations on still grappling with uh, the consequences of a globalized American economy. The make America great again thing. It's an appeal to nostalgia about uh, somewhat imagined past, not entirely imagined, but. Right. I mean, we were just talking right now about uh, the immigration issue and the politics of this. I think uh, the way Trump talks about this issue is completely out of step uh, for a millennial generation where whatever the economic issues about competition for with low-skilled labor that uh, you were raising, mm -hmm. which are serious points, I mean, politically, I think that one of the reasons that millennials find Trump so icky is that for a generation that is comprised to such a large proportion by immigrants, uh, a lot of that rhetoric sounds very hostile. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I forget the exact numbers. Um, but I think that as, uh, if you look at the percentage of immigrants within the millennial cohort, it is the highest uh, of any cohort since the generation when we had the waves of Italian sure. immigration in the early 20th century. Yeah. Um, and so that kind, uh, you know, that very boomer way of talking about immigration, which has been bubbling around for decades, just seems very irrelevant to millennials. And I think that Republicans are suffering in terms of engaging in this generational issue right now by the fact that Trump is the president and he um, at least nominally or theoretically is a member of the Republican Party and has, uh, you know, sometimes makes some desultory efforts to try to lead the party. Um, you know, I think that one of the reasons that the Democrats feel that they are able to move further to the left is that they don't have that kind of constraint. I mean, they're currently trying to compete to figure out what their direction is going to be. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, ben Shapiro actually made a very good point about this about a year ago in an essay for the Weekly Standard. Um, may she rest in peace. Um, this is one of the reasons why young conservative, young self-identified conservatives are so much more either lukewarm or hostile to Trump is that unlike the baby boomer cohort, the older cohort, um, 
they haven't self-sorted yet. They still have to have conversations with people of different ethnicities, different skin colors, different orientations at the college lunch table or at the workplace. And in those conversations, when you say you're a conservative and then the first question is how can you support Donald Trump, it creates a, a dissonance that is very um, complicated for young people. But old people, old white people, uh, disproportionately rural and, and, and Midwestern and all of that, um, they've self-sorted. They all talk to people who already agree with them on everything. They all watch the same news. And um, so they don't run into this sort of social friction kind of thing. And this is a point that uh, uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson is, makes all the time is that this is a short-term great gain for the GOP. Long-term, the the consequences of this are going to be very difficult for the GOP as as the Trump coalition shrinks from death. Now, I, I remember that uh, Ben Shapiro essay in the Weekly Standard. I thought it was very perceptive um, because the other argument that he pointed, which uh, jibes with something that I hear in a lot of conversations that I have with uh, have about Trump with older Republicans is, again, this issue of the lesson that older Republicans in particular think that they learned from the Clinton experience. Yeah. Uh, and so what you often hear is this sense of, well, you know, we couldn't beat it, so we should join it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, doesn't really resonate with uh, millennials in the same way, partly because I think there's also a really interesting issue about party loyalty among millennials um, because even among Democrats or in a situation where you would ordinarily expect a lot of millennial voters to vote for Democrats. I mean, first off, um, yeah, I think that there is some – evidence that millennials were a lot less enthusiastic about voting for Hillary Clinton than they were about voting for Barack Obama, Sure, uh, which might be one of uh, the many factors that ended up costing her that election. So that already shows that the party loyalty of millennials wasn't strong enough to get their candidate over the hump, even when she was running against yeah. a candidate millennials really didn't like. And, you know, you can point to other examples of that. I mean, I, I think that something a lot of other people have already remarked on is the fact that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got elected to Congress not in a Democratic youth quake that finally swept a Republican out of that seat, but by challenging an established member of Congress from her own party. Right. Uh, which, you know... And she underperformed with minorities and overperformed with the, what I keep calling the barista socialists, right? Right. But, I mean, she she won that primary. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that she waged that primary battle is some, the sort of thing that used to be viewed as a form of party disloyalty. Right, right, right. Um, and I think that that just goes to show that uh, millennials don't feel entirely satisfied with the answers that they're getting from either major political party right now. Uh, and we should be viewing that as an opportunity on both sides of the spectrum. I mean, Bernie Sanders has been very quick out of the gate to try to seize that opportunity with his own policy views, but that is certainly not the only solution to those problems. And I think that uh, Republicans should be embracing the opportunity to join in that competition too. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And um I'm sorry if I sound sluggish. I woke up at 3.30 this morning and then could not get back to sleep. And one of the reasons why was because I didn't have a sleep number bed. And um, I am um, – uh, I will be fully honest. I don't have a sleep number bed. The specific reason I don't is that 
Uh, I used one at a friend's house. I loved it. I have a terrible back. I'm also prone to um, snoring, or so I'm told. And the sleep number bag seemed to fix it all. But because of an architectural screw-up when we redid our house, we cannot get the one we want up the stairs. And that is the only reason why I do not have a sleep number bed. But I highly, highly, highly recommend them. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep number beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for both of you. The sleep number 360 smart beds are so smart, they sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. I can attest to this. Sleep number has been ranked highest in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power for 2018 award information. Just visit jdpower.com. So come in during the Memorial Day sale and save $1,000 on a new Sleep Number 360 Special Edition smart bed for temperature, balancing comfort at an exceptional value. You'll only find Sleep Number at any of the 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash dingo. That's sleepnumber.com slash D-I-N-G-O. Okay, I actually have to get going in a moment. Okay. I'm sorry for running long on this, but are not running long, but having to cut it short. Uh, so, what the hell do you want to do about all this? Um, well, that is a very good question, which, of course, is the answer that people always give when they don't know what answer they want to uh, deliver. I mean, I resisted the instinct to try to put a bullet point list of policy prescriptions in the end, uh, partly because. Uh, I, I think that I, I felt that to state the problem the way I'm trying to get at it in the book uh, at least gives millennial readers and also boomers a new way to think about the problem that potentially leads to some policy solutions. I mean, the reality is that these are going to be very difficult things for us to fix. Um, and the first issue is that you are going to have to understand what the problem is. I'm taking a stab at that. I hope that there are going to be a lot of other attempts like this moving forward. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the key point is to the first thing you can do in something like the labor market is at least try to look back at the past decade and start really getting a handle on how how a, an event like the Great Recession affects different companies in the economy in different ways and why that is and what are the generational implications of that. Um, I think that for issues like the uh, housing market, you have to ask yourself questions uh, either at the federal or the state or the local level. I mean, you pointed out that not even all of these problems are federal problems. Right. Um, you know, I think that there needs to be a discussion about are we getting the right mix of policies that, so that we at least understand what are the general tra generational trade-offs that we are making before we make them. I think that was the big lapse over the past 10 years is that you had people – thinking of themselves as doing firefighting in the midst of the crisis without realizing that it was something more than that. It was going, what they were doing would have big implications for generational balances within mm -hmm. the economy moving forward. Um, and so I'm not going to pretend that I have a specific list of policy answers to all of these problems. My big plea is for people to really start thinking in these terms in addition to all of the other ways that we already sure. think about policy. Um, yeah, I think that uh, policymaking shouldn't only be about young versus old, but you should include that at the same time that you're thinking about uh, insiders versus outsider issues. Uh, at the same time, we're thinking about any of the other dimensions that we use to try to judge the winners or the losers from economic policy. Yeah, I have to say, really hoping for a sort of Logan's Run 
style solution here where we just wrap old people up in sheets and then explode them. Um, but you know, maybe, you know, you just can't risk that kind of policy innovation these days. Um, anyway, uh, Joe, thank you very much for coming on. Um, theft of a decade, uh, how the baby boomers screwed up everything. It's not the real subtitle, but I like that better. Anyway, thanks a bunch for having on and, uh, hope to have you back. Well, thanks for having me in. Sure. Um, you might want to just pull your mic closer to you. Okay. Um, um, he sounds fine. Does he sound fine? Okay. It, just, it made me nervous, you know. D- A lot of things make me nervous. That's true. Spiders. Um, <laughs> <laughs>